to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention, a podcast by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. Over the last year, we've had multiple conversations and public events around what it means to prevent and respond to atrocities at a granular level. These conversations have ranged from discussing the relationship between R2P and human rights violations, to situating atrocity prevention within the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda, and to understanding the preventive and restorative aspects of pursuing investigations, justice, and accountability. To explore these dynamics further, this podcast will feature one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention. We hope that through these conversations, we can explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. In today's episode, we will be discussing the recent coup in Myanmar and its implications for the risk of further atrocities. The Global Center has been following the situation in Myanmar and the plight of ethnic and religious minorities in the country since 2008. Despite the transition towards democracy and civilian rule more than a decade ago, the Global Center remained alarmed by patterns of discrimination and incitement targeting certain ethnic groups, as well as several bouts of intercommunal violence and ongoing fighting between the military and ethnic armed groups in parts of the country. Following the military's launch of so-called clearance operations in Rakhine State in 2017, a UN fact-finding mission concluded that Myanmar had conducted a genocide against the Rohingya and that the military had also committed war crimes and crimes against humanity in Shan, Kachin, and Rakhine states. Since then, the Global Center has continued its advocacy to bring the situation in Myanmar to the attention of the UN Security Council and to support efforts to hold perpetrators accountable at the International Court of Justice. We're recording today's episode on Monday, March 1st, exactly one month after the start of the coup. Yesterday sadly marked the most violent day in the military's crackdown on protesters thus far, with at least 20 people killed. Today I am honored to be joined by two activists from Myanmar, Weiwei Nu and Myra Daigapa. Myra is a Karen human rights activist from Karen State, Eastern Burma. She was an internally displaced person and a refugee prior to resettling in the U.S. Myra is currently the managing director of the U.S. Campaign for Burma, and she previously worked as a human rights advocate at the U.N. with the Burma Fund United Nations Office. Weiwei is a former political prisoner and the founder and executive director of the Women Peace Network in Myanmar. She also co-founded Justice for Women in Yangon and was recently a fellow at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Thank you both for sharing your time with us today. I know you're busy amidst the ongoing political situation. Since you're both from Myanmar and have been active on issues related to human rights for some time, I wanted to start today's discussion by asking you to share a little about yourselves and your work on ethnic minority groups in Myanmar to date. Weiwei, would you like to start? Oh yes, my name is Weiwei Nu and um, I work for Women's Peace Network. We set up the organization since 2030, and since then I've been working very uh, intensively uh, around the issue of protections of minority rights, um, building peace and uh, empowering the community so that we can address the issue of 
um, the severe forms of human rights violations and marginalizations of the ethnic uh, and religious minorities and uh, bring justice for the, those who uh, uh, suffered from the injustice and um, you know potentially uh, eventually build uh, peace in Myanmar. Thank you for that, Weiwei. Myra, could you also give us a little introduction into your own background working with ethnic minority groups in Myanmar to date? Sure, thank you. Thank you for having us. So yes, I am Myra Dagapa from Eastern Burma, current state, yes. Um, so I guess for me, I find it as a... Um, as the way of giving back to the community. And I also, to a certain extent, feel uh, responsible to do what, I'm, what, I'm, what I've been doing because it is important for the people who are left behind who doesn't experience the freedom I have experienced here in the US. So with that, I just wanted to talk a little bit uh, about our organization, US Campaign for Burma. Currently, we're focusing on ethnic minorities, especially regarding issues that are, that are not really uh, written or uh, talk about in the international news. Myra, could you tell us a little more about what risks minorities face before the coup, including from military suppression? The Burmese military, also known as Dartmada, is increasing um, their ongoing offensive uh, in the ethnic states that leads to human rights violations, mass atrocities, murder, and uh, displacements and all this stuff. And so uh, just to take you guys today, um, while there was some hope in peace process a few years back, there was like totally flaw because the military worked to prolong uh, their own power in order to deceive the ethnic armed groups as well as the international community. And so at this point in Western Burma, uh, the leftover about 600,000 Rohingya have to live in restricted slums and or in displa displacement camps inside Rakhine State. And in, the, in addition to that, um, in northern Rakhine State and the southern Chin State, um, the Burma army also waged a war against the Arkan army where uh, in the past two years. And that's also displaced over 230,000 Arkanis and Chin civilians and also many more killed. And so despite the protests against the clashes, the military offensive in Kachin state and uh, Northern Shan state also doesn't decrease, which is similar to the situation in uh, Central Shan state as well as in Karen state. And so giving example, um, the Korean civilians in um, Northern Korean state started off their 2021 by fleeing for lives into the jungle. And so by the beginning of February, uh, we learned that there were at least uh, 5,300 internally displaced persons in, um, in, in Northern Korean state, and they don't have access to humanitarian assistance. There are goods, there are basic needs that provide it. It's just that the military, the Burmese military doesn't allow people to, uh, the aid workers to get to the community, the impacted community, and the impacted community cannot come and get um, was help from where um, things are kept. And then meanwhile, in Rakhine, uh, sorry, in Karini and Mon State, um, in many other parts of the ethnic states where 
you don't hear the sound of the guns. But the civilians are displaced because the Burmese military confiscated their lands for mega development projects. So basically, this is sort of like a quick run through uh, situation, what's going on within the ethnic states at this point. Myra, I really appreciate your final point about how the risks are there, even if you're not hearing the guns. Um, I think in atrocity situations, people are often looking for evidence of attacks, um, physical attacks on populations, evidence of um, killings, when in fact, there's much more nuance to atrocities. There, the risks um, involve a lot of variation, a lot of government policy, systematic actions that go far beyond physical violence and mass violence. Weiwei, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on specific risks faced over time in Rakhine State. So when we talk about Rakhine State, we're specifically documenting human rights violations against the Rohingya populations, and uh, we have been doing advocacy to end um, the uh, the attack and violence against Rohingya in Rakhine State, as well as build um, like mutual uh, build trust and relationship between the Rakhine uh, Rakhine Rohingya and the rest of the populations, uh, where we had the situation that uh, this particular group has been um, uh, somehow. Uh, has has somehow been targeted uh, systematically, and uh, the the hate and prejudice uh, against the Rohingya population has um, throughout these years has been escalating uh, through many many uh, situations, underlying situations as such hate campaign, uh, hate speech, and propagandas against the Rohingya population. And have you seen any increasing risks in Rakhine State um, or risks to the Rohingya since the start of the coup last month? Not uh, really. My feeling is that the military right now trying to legitimize and legal, uh, normalize the coup uh, as um, much as possible. They are trying everything they can. They are using every tactics available to legitimize and normalize the coup. Then we will see, um, I think, even more um, escalations of human rights uh, violations in the ethnic communities, areas in the ethnic communities. And, um, but right now, in Rakhine State, when it's come to the, uh, to this Rohingya, the um, male line, the commander in chief, um, the leader of the coup, um, he uh, announced that um, on television, cinema, TV, um, he said he is going to um, start repatriation, start resume the dialogue discussions with the Bangladesh that they have uh, with 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 NLD government, and they will continue repatriation process with the. Um, according to the current framework so that it, it seems like you know for a lot it's kind of confusing and it can be seen as a positive development perhaps but it's uh i in my observations it is it is just a a, a trap or it is just um 
an incentive I think uh, he is given to the international community to ease pressure on on the on the on him. Thank you for that, Weiwei. We agree that um, the current situation challenges the opportunities for a safe, dignified, and voluntary repatriation of Rohingya, which is extremely important to to keep the process in line with international law. Um, so this current situation raises a number of risks related to that. Myra, from your observations, what are the biggest risks to civilians um, amidst the ongoing coup? Has, has anything changed or worsened for particular ethnic groups or minorities since the coup started? There are so many different things. So, uh, but I probably might talk about three to four things. Is that, okay, so... Now you see the coup is going happening in the country, and then in the pre- preliminary analysis of the harsh crackdown on the unarmed protesters led by the young people, there has been a disproportionate crackdown on young people protesting in the ethnic nationalities areas and in the conflict affected areas such as Pekin State. And uh, so we saw that. Um, even though the protests in the ethnic areas are smaller comparing to protests in, say, Rangoon or other urban areas, the number of arrests of the ethnic uh, protesters uh, is disproportionately high. I wanted to highlight that. And also, we can expect that there will be more aggressive attacks on the civilians if ethnic ethnic armed groups organization challenge the military's uh, agenda. Um, you, you guys might notice in the past uh, week, last week, 10 ethnic armed organizations that are signatories to the nationwide ceasefire agreement to also acknowledge the illegitimacy of the military coup and their support for the nationwide civil disobedience movement. So based on the Kachin and Arkine area, Airstrikes and uh, big artillery shells on the villages can be deadly as um, they are a clear target uh, for them. But also at the same time, uh, the the ethnic armed organizations, if they don't have clear map, they can hide in jungle. That way, the Burmese uh, military will come and attack them. But who's going to monitor the, the situation 24-7 like it's happening uh, in the city? And that is exactly what the Burma army is uh, wanting, that nobody will know the crimes they are committed because when the fighting happens, the the civilians are the one who impacted most. And another thing I'd like to point out is that um, there will be more divide and conquer tactics that the Burmese army will be using. It is inevitable due to the NCA, the Nationwide Ceasefire Agreement uh, presence. Because here you're going to see some ethnic armed groups will be divided into smaller groups because some of them don't want to fight back or uh, challenge the Dapmodo, but some of them will fight back. Why is because, for instance, again, in Korean State, you have a lot of roads that are very accessible from the city to the, the, uh, the jungle. And so you're going to start seeing the tank roaming and then operation uh, will be taking place in the territory where the, the, the roads are good and um, the tanks can go around. In that case, 
I mean, think about, can you imagine aftermath of all these incidents that will be happening? The conflict will never end, but it will even increase literally, vertically, as well as horizontally. And as a result, you're going to see the influx of refugees and IEDPs. And it is so hard for me to imagine um, where are they going to go? How are they going to get essential uh, humanitarian support? I mean, right now. COVID restrictions are already causing difficulties to travel along the border and to cross into Thailand. So I couldn't even imagine how things will, will, will turn out. Since you've both mentioned um, military attempts to legitimize the current government and the need for the international community to, to continue, resisting, continue resisting legitimizing the coup, um, I think we should transition to discussing the international response to the situation. So over the past month, we've seen a lot of states and UN officials condemn the coup. And in some cases, states have issued sanctions against the military leaders. So I'm wondering, have you noticed a difference in the reactions from the international community after the findings of the UN fact-finding mission, um, which presented evidence of genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity in 2018 versus the current response and reaction of the international community to the coup, or even the response of the international community to other crimes happening in Myanmar. Um, Myra mentioned earlier the fighting going on in Kachin, which I, I don't even think is on the radar of many people in the international community, either because it hasn't risen to the level of the Security Council, or it's just not as front and center as some of these bigger stories? Sure, certainly. I mean, it is very sad to see that the international community is only reactive to what actually is happening, but not proactive to help uh, uh, resolve the root cause of the problem. Burma's situation is not... Um, is not a, a one-time issue. It has been root, rooted very deeply and therefore it has to be solved. Uh, but until now, I mean, the international community is still making verbal condemnations, but no concrete action is taken yet. Like we, uh, we were talking about, I mean, the Rohingya exodus took place in September 2017 and back then they made a little noise as if they, they, they care. Um, but then what? After some years now, there's no, no perpetrators uh, were brought to justice or punished. And the killers are walking around free, but the impacted communities, they are the ones who have to live in fear on a daily basis. And very few countries consider the Rohingya situation as genocide, while war crimes and crimes against humanity also taking place in, um, in other ethnic areas. And then just a handful of countries support ICJ case and no one talks about ICC anymore. So that clearly says that international community is just only reacting when things are happening. And then if things are not happening, they are acting as though nothing happened. So yes, we do business with uh, military as usual. That's such an important 
observation about how it's it's constantly reactive when it comes to the situation in Myanmar. The international community issues statements in response to things happening, but often isn't there to lay the groundwork um, when you're at a phase where you should be addressing the root causes of the conflict. Weiwei, I'll turn to you. Do you have any reflections on this difference we've seen in the response of the international community to evidence of genocide versus the response to the ongoing coup? Yes, the international community has responded to it. Um, mostly statement and um, uh, a statement and condemnations uh, over the past uh, few weeks. These responses are already too late, and um, and even now the response is not enough because you know this military is emboldened by the impunity that they have been enjoying for many many years for decades. Um, they they basically felt they got free pass. Uh, in 2010, when we had 2011, when we had political transitions, their past crimes were never addressed. We had we never had transitional justice processes, and then they continue to um, uh, implement their agenda, and they continue to use ethnic and uh, religious minorities to uh, for their political interests and and even to the point that they uh, you know try to eliminate an entire ethnic group from from Myanmar right and uh, and um and then they continue to commit this gross international uh, uh crimes and human rights violations and um and they started uh this uh, clearance operations against Rohingya in 2016 uh, there was no uh, actions uh, instead um, reward. Uh, for instance, the U.S. lifting sanctions in the middle of this clearance operations, right? And they felt they got more free pass, and then they um, committed a, a, a way bigger, five-time bigger crimes, uh, five-time bigger clearance, so-called clearance operations in 2017, and yet they are not held accountable. So, you know, they felt they got another free pass that, uh, you know, they can continue to do, continue to commit whatever they want. And this is the result that we are seeing. And now the whole, the entire country is paying the price. It's it's a it's it's the result of the collective uh, international failure, and it's the it, it it is the result of the immoral leaderships inside Myanmar. It is result of the compromises that political leaders made over the suffering of people, over the uh, suffering of uh, communities and groups like Rohingya. That is a really important point about the consequences of impunity for human rights violations over time. Myanmar is a fantastic example because it has been repeated over more than a decade, this sort of pattern of we're going to prioritize things like democratization over punishing perpetrators of crimes against ethnic minority groups. And obviously any further impunity for what's going on with the coup now um, will likely have grave consequences for populations in the future. 
So you've both touched on this a little bit in your earlier response, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to think a little deeper about um, what do you think the future holds for Myanmar and particularly for the fate of minority groups in the current situation with the coup and, and going forward afterwards? Sure. Um, I'd say especially for the ethnic minorities, it is getting very dangerous because right now, we're talking about every ethnic minorities in the country. They're going to be jammed between many different uh, problems. Uh, for instance, uh, now they're going to have to free themselves from the current coup. That's already a big thing. And then you're going to also see the fighting going on between the ethnic armed groups, organize, uh, armed groups organizations and then the, the Burmese army which will lead to a lot more refugees and IDPs. And at the same time, you, uh, for, for the ethnic groups, even if this coup is um, resolved, they will still have to work on the political resolution for federal, uh, real federal union. And before then, there could be increase of uh, offensive, offensiveness in the ethnic states. And so, I mean, one the the very important thing I wanted to point out is that patching up issues here and there with humanitarian assistance, um, which mostly goes through the government government approval channel anyway, is not going to help with the situation in Burma. Um, and the international community really one thing I wanted to point out, and if they are listening, I really wanted them to listen to this piece is that they need to empower and support ethnic minority-led community and social uh, development organizations and structures that are operated elsewhere uh, where uh, they are working directly with the impacted communities and where the refugees are located, but not where the military control. Because here is that um, the cross-border aid is critical and if you go through the Burmese military or the, the Burmese government, you're going to end up giving away more than half of the fund over there anyway. So what if not working and empowering the ethnic community leaders who have been working there all this time, they have the infrastructure that is workable. That is why they've been working with and working for the refugees and the internally displaced people for all these years. The, Burm the Burmese government, the Burmese army never come in and help us. Instead, they put us into trouble. So that is one thing that I wanted to make sure that the international community is um, making note of that. Because for us to be able to come up to the same level, to level up with the, the Burmese uh, government and the Burmese military, we need to be lifted up. We need to be empowered. Otherwise, we're going to be there at the bottom and we're going to be oppressed and we're going to have to fight. And this vicious circle is not going to never end. I completely agree with uh, Myra in terms of the empowering the ethnic minorities populations. And all of, a lot of this um, um, targeted persecution has actually uh, been able to continue because of this uh, repressive system that uh, weakened, um, that uh, create vulnerability among the ethnic communities, and that um, 
um, that create um, a higher level of gap, inequality gap between the Bama ethnic and the the other uh, the rest of the uh, ethnic minorities. So the need to address equality inequality is uh, is crucial. The need to address inequality in all level in is crucial. Uh, especially, we need to be lifted up by through education and through economy. So that is uh, two key areas that we should pay attention to. Um, I think because international responses are slow and soft, the military is military. Burmese army has actually waited for a month now. It has been very slow and very soft. Thus, yesterday on the 28th February, uh, they use really severe level of violence attack again against the civilian, against the peaceful peaceful protesters. Um, including the use of lethal force, uh, firearms, and many, many uh, brutals from uh, forms of attack against these peaceful protesters. In some cases, they even, um, you know, uh, uh, they even like uh, come into the, uh, go into the houses of people and uh, torture and arrest and, um, and uh, they shot fire against the people houses, uh, towards the people houses, residential areas. And there has been in some uh, incidences indiscriminate shootings against civilians, unarmed civilians. And it's been really um, um, terrifying to see what is going on. I have a feeling that the military, because of the um, soft international response, the military has been increasing the level of attack, violence attack against the civilians. That includes uh, the, 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 um, the situation that I have just described and also uh, many forms of abuses and, and uh, violence attack against even targeting the pregnant women's and uh, pregnant pregnant women and children. So it's, I think we are in, in a very, very dangerous situations now. How can we trust this brutal Burma military that have committed so many crimes in the past against many ethnic communities and against Rohingya, right? How can we allow genocide suspects and criminals to run the country again. I think it will be outrageous to see the world if the world allowed to run this military, the, uh, to, uh, the country again. I am, I am really, really worried. This is, this is terrifying, actually. Thank you for that very powerful reflection, Weiwei. Um, I think that we're we're all unified in being increasingly concerned about the situation in Myanmar and 
um, the implications of the increasing levels of violence being used against peaceful protesters across the country. And as protests increase, um, we'll all have our eyes on the country to see what happens and how the military responds. Thank you both for sharing your time with us today. I know you're very busy and we appreciate you were able to reflect on the current situation with us. Um, the Global Center and myself wish you, your, your family, and all of your colleagues back in Myanmar um, safety and security during the ongoing political situation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, please visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.